Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Thanks for joining me this evening. Tonight's author is Louis Bromfield, born the son of a farmer in Mansfield, Ohio in 1896. He studied agriculture at Cornell University from 1914 to 1916, but transferred to Columbia University to study journalism. But not for long. He served in the American Field Service in France during World War I. After the war, he returned to New York City and found work as a reporter. His first novel, The Green Bay Tree, was published in 1924 and won him instant acclaim. In 1927, he won the Pulitzer Prize for his novel Early Autumn. All of his 30 books were bestsellers, and some were made into successful motion pictures. In the 1930s, however, he turned again to agriculture, which became his consuming passion, and he became a pioneer in the field of organic farming and sustainable agriculture. His Malabar farm in Richland County here in Ohio is now a state park. The action of tonight's story, Up Ferguson Way, is set in the high meadowed prairie at Malabar Farm. This beautifully written story is presented in response to a request from Lauren, a native of Richland County. It is longer than my usual programs, so, in a sense, it is also a response to listeners who have requested an occasional longer narrative. Tonight is the first part of Up Ferguson Way, and the conclusion will follow next week. Twice before in my life I have written stories about Zenobia, once more than twenty years ago, and again a few years later. Both times I was forced to give her a different name from her own, for she lived to a prodigious age and was still alive. Once I called her Zenobia White, and once Zenobia Van Essen, and both times I invented certain details to disguise her as much as possible something, of course, which could not be done because there was never anyone I knew or heard of who was quite like her. Both times I invented the end of her life, and both times I was wrong. The first time, being a young writer and still romantic, I gave her a dramatic death. The second time, a commonplace one. The whole point of what I am going to tell you is that while they found a body in Zenobia's cottage and buried it, she never really died at all. The longer I live, the more I am inclined to believe in forces which we do not understand, which compel our destinies along other courses from those we have carefully planned. I can't help believing, too, that these same forces entangle our lives with those of others, although they may be strangers or persons only encountered casually two or three times in all our lives. Something like that happened with Zenobia's life and mine. I never knew her very well for she was already an old woman when I was born, and I saw her only casually in my youth. But in a life spent largely wandering about the earth, in meeting thousands of people of every race, nationality, and creed, I never met one who left upon me so profound an impression. She compelled me to write of her at least twice, and still, even after they buried her, she compels me to write of her again." and I have the impression that the story of our vague but strong relationship is not yet finished. I am aware of her presence every time I go up Ferguson Way. You see, 
Her real name was neither White nor Van Essen, but Ferguson, Zenobia Ferguson, a rich, pretty name. The first time I saw her I could not have been more than seven or eight years old. My father, a Democrat and somewhat of a politician in his small way, used at election time to drive out over the country visiting farm and village people, seeking the assurance of their votes either for himself or for some fellow Democrat. He rode in an old-fashioned buggy, driving a team, and very often he would take me with him for company. For a small boy it was always an exciting adventure. We visited very nearly every farm in every township, driving up remote narrow lanes that led from the rich valley farms into the hills. My father was a pleasant man. Nearly everybody loved him and called him Tom, and when noon came or darkness fell, we were always invited to sit down for noonday dinner or to spend the night. Going about with him I came to know every farmer and every lane in the whole county, a beautiful county I never forgot in all the years I spent away from it. Irresistibly I found myself comparing other landscapes to it, and never for myself did I find a more satisfying one. It was a country of rich, flat valleys between wide wooded hills with springs and streams everywhere. You could leave a rich valley, and driving up a narrow wooded lane leave civilization behind you and climb into a wilderness of tangled ferns and trees, wild grapes, and dogwood. Sometimes, after climbing for a time through a forest, you would come upon a kind of small rolling plateau where there was a lonely hill farm with the house built beside a spring. It was the kind of country where, over each hill, a new and romantic world appears, different from the country you had left behind. That kind of country makes romantic people. Flat country makes dull, prosaic, and material ones. Zenobia lived all her life in one of those lonely farmhouses. If she had lived in flat country, her story would have been different. People would never have referred to her lonely farm as Up Ferguson Way, as if there were something high and strange and mystical about it. She was a kind of vague relation of my father's and mine, because her grandfather and my father's great-grandfather were brothers. Her ancestor had married an Indian woman of the Delaware tribe, who on the frontier at that period was known as a princess because she was the daughter of a chief. Despite the remoteness of the relationship, she called my father Cousin Tom, and because it pleased her, he called her Cousin Zenobia. On the first day I ever met her, the weather was bright and the air clear and brilliant, with that peculiar brilliance which comes to our country in the month of October. My father and I had risen while the frost was still on the fields of the valley, and all morning we had followed the valley road, stopping to talk with farmers, sometimes taking a hand at husking corn or wringing pigs or driving cattle while we talked. A little before noon we reached Ed Berry's place, and he invited us to stay to dinner, but my father said, "'No thanks, just the same, Ed. I want to drop in on Zenobia and get down into the other valley before noon.' At the mention of Zenobia, Ed's face relaxed into that peculiar, special smile which came over the faces of people when they spoke her name or thought of her. 
It was a smile in which humor and affection and pity and patronage were all blended, the kind of a smile people have for a beguiling child. Yet it was more than that, an indescribable smile, reserved for Zenobia alone by the people of the county. Ed said, "'So you're going up Ferguson way.' And there was something in his voice that even as a child I recognized as special and different. It was as if he had said, "'So you're going out of this world for a time.' Then he added, "'Give Zenobia my best. Tell her we'll be up to get her corn out before Thanksgiving.' It was then the middle of October, with Thanksgiving more than a month away. It was odd that Ed didn't count on seeing her in the meanwhile, when he lived only a couple of miles away. We said good-bye, and my father spoke to the horses, and turned from Ed's lane to the old township road which led from the valley through the forest up Ferguson Way. Even at that time the road really led nowhere except to Zenobia's place, it was an awful road, full of holes with ridges of red sandstone cropping out of the dark soil here and there. A little way from Ed's farm, the road led into the forest, up and up, winding its way through the thickly growing trees. It was in the days before caterpillar tractors existed, and the country was so wild and rough that even if one cut the trees, there was no practical way of getting them out and so much of the forest was virgin, the same forest which had existed there since glacial times. The oaks and beeches and maples rose straight up like Greek columns to a height of a hundred feet or more, and underneath them grew a jungle of dogwood and ironwood and wild grapes and ferns and snake-root. Along the sides of the steep, rough road, springs gushed up out of the sandstone among clusters of maidenhair fern. There was a peculiar, almost tropical luxuriance about the forest bordering the road that led up Ferguson Way, and there still is today. For nearly half an hour the horses struggled up through the tunnel of trees and vines, and then we came suddenly into the open in a high pasture with a broken gate. The bluegrass was still green with the autumn rains, and all along the fence rows the sassafras and sumac were flaunting their brilliant autumn foliage against the bright blue October sky. The road had become little more than a trail. We drove on, and presently we came out upon the bald top of a very high hill, it was as if we had reached the top of the world. Above us there was nothing but the clear October sky, and below lay valley after valley, big and small, all bordered and intersected by forests of beech and oak and maple, which had turned red and gold and purple. Far below in the checkerboard of the valley lay golden squares of shocked corn, bordered by other squares green with the brilliant emerald green of winter rye and wheat. In the distance the whole faded imperceptibly into the blue autumn mist of infinity. My father pulled up the horses and said, "'Take a good look, son. You'll never see anything more beautiful than that.' It was a bold statement for a man who had seen so little of the world, but nearly forty years later his son, who by that time had seen most of the world, knew that he had been right.
We sat there for a long time, and presently my father slapped the horses with the reins, and without a word drove on. Even then I guessed that he had come all the way up over the awful rough road as much to see the view as he had to call on Zenobia Ferguson. We started downhill again along the wild road, and as we rounded a clump of flaming sumac, we came full upon a pair of woodchucks, and an extraordinary thing happened. They did not scamper off in their heavy, alarmed fashion. They merely sat up on their hind legs, like two plump little old people, and stared at us. One of them chatted a little, as if scolding us. But although we passed not ten feet away from them, they did not stir, but only turned their heads to follow us out of sight. I said to my father, Why don't they run away? But the only answer I got was, I don't know. Maybe they don't see people up here very often, and aren't afraid of them. Then the road curved, and we came in sight of a cottage set against the hillside below the crest of the high bald hill. It was small, and, never having been painted, was the earthy silver-gray shade of wood weathered for many years. It seemed to grow out of the hillside, and the vines which climbed over the little porch heightened the illusion. Enclosing the little garden was a rather bedraggled picket fence overgrown with vines, and before the door stood the inevitable pair of tall Norway spruce that stand before every old farmhouse in our part of the country. At the sound of our approach, a white yearling colt ran over to the fence to whinny at sight of the team, and three big dogs, one a very old hound-dog, and two others that were just farm-dogs, came running and barking. Then, as we pulled up to the hitching-rail, a strange figure opened the door and came down the path toward us. At first I thought it was a man, for it wore a man's clothes, blue denim pants, and a man's checked shirt open at the throat. The figure was slim like a man's and very erect, but the face was too feminine for a man's face, and the black hair drawn into a knot at the back of the head killed the illusion. My father said, "'Hello, Cousin Zenobia. We've come to pay you a visit.' And she said, "'You're surely welcome, Cousin Tom. Hitch the horses and come in.' Then, as I climbed down from the high buggy, she laid her hand on my head and said, "'Is this your boy?' And my father answered, "'Yes.' This is the middle one. I don't recall ever having seen him before, said Zenobia. Then she held my head between her hands and looked at me for a long time, and at last she said, releasing me, Yes, he'll do. He has the right kind of eye. To my father she said, You know, you can tell people and animals by their eyes, Tom. I hadn't the faintest idea what she meant. I only knew that I had had my first and only experience with hypnotism. Long after she turned away from me, even though I was looking up into the brilliant October sunlight, I saw nothing but the eyes of Zenobia Ferguson. They were black Indian eyes, pupilless and opaque, and in them there was a fierce intensity, not that of madness, as I understood later on, but the intensity of someone who sees beyond present things into a world beyond. 
I know now that I was puzzled, too, by her sexlessness, that she seemed a very handsome, fierce creature who was not quite like any man or any woman I had ever seen. She was at least sixty at the time, yet she had the figure of a boy, and her hair was still quite black. I suppose this, like her eyes, was a heritage from the remote Delaware chieftain's daughter. The dogs gathered round us, sniffing and wagging their tails, and the white colt came away from the fence and rubbed its muzzle against my head. I was small, and a big colt that behaved like a dog must have startled me, for Zenobia said, "'Don't worry. He won't do you any harm. He's just playing.' Then she gave him a push and said, "'Run along, Willie.' Willie ran away, and Zenobia said, "'Sure, you're staying for dinner, Cousin Tom.' My father protested, but it did no good. Zenobia said, "'You come in, Tom, and talk to me while I get up something. The boy can play around outside.' They went into the cottage, and I wandered off into the jungle of a garden which surrounded the house. Looking back now, that garden seemed to one small boy as romantic, as full of adventure, as any jungle in Sumatra. In October few flowers remained save wild asters, but the whole place was a ragged mass of iris and old-fashioned rose-bushes, grapevines, and fruit-trees. I helped myself to great bunches of purple grapes and ate them as I wandered about the bushes. The three dogs followed me and Willie the colt, and presently I lost all uneasiness of them. They became suddenly old friends, and when the white colt nibbled at my hair I only laughed with that curious satisfaction which a boy knows in his relationship to a pet raccoon or puppy. Among the ragged lilac bushes I came upon an old spring-house where the water gushed out of red sandstone outcrop into a great stone trough. It was cold, clear water, and for a long time I held the grapes beneath the stream, for they tasted better when they were chilled. Behind the spring-house stood the old log-house built there beside the spring by Zenobia's grandfather in Indian times. It was a tiny cabin, not more than fifteen by twenty feet in size, made of hand-hewn logs with mud plastered between them. I went inside and saw that the old house was now the home of the white-colt Willie and the dogs. Behind the cabin I came suddenly upon a Jersey cow with a newborn calf that was like a young doe. At the sight of me the cow showed no alarm, but only stared at me out of her great slow eyes while she licked the calf. I went up to the calf and rubbed its brown nose, and still the cow showed no uneasiness. These were the things which I saw with my eyes, but while I wandered about something else was happening to me something which I did not fully understand then, save as a sense of childish ecstasy. I think it began when we emerged from the rough road tunneled through the woods to that high plateau under the brilliant October sky. I know now that it was like coming out of one world into another, in which the senses were heightened and sharpened. I seemed to belong here, very near to the two woodchucks who regarded us so humorously without fear, near suddenly to the old dogs and Willie the colt. In that jungle of old lilacs and rose-bushes the birds came very close. A robin sat on a lilac bough not three feet from me, 
and watched while I ate the grapes. A squirrel sat without fear on the eaves of the old log-house, and chattered and made faces at me, and the sight of all these things made the heart of that small boy sing, I think because all these living things seemed so near and so without strangeness or fear. It was as if this little world, existing high against the blue October sky, were a small paradise, a little world that was what all the great world should be. I was playing on the edge of the little duck-pond below the spring-house, rapturously happy, when I heard Zenobia's voice calling me. It was a deep, pleasant voice with a curious bell quality. Ed Berry said he could sometimes hear her calling home the Jersey cow from down below in the valley more than two miles away. It wasn't that her voice was loud, but it had a clear quality, which, when the wind was right and the evening clear, could be heard a long way off. All the neighbors down in the valley knew Zenobia's voice. It belonged in that wild, pretty, tangled spot. There were no screens on the doors or windows, and although there were at that time of the year only a few sleepy flies to annoy us, Zenobia kept a small branch of lilac in her hand, which she waved over the table from time to time. Then I noticed her hands for the first time, big and work-hardened, but long and beautiful in shape. She wore a lot of rings on them, old-fashioned cameos and amethysts in heavy gold settings. I think she had put them on in honor of the occasion, just as she had put on in place of the man's clothes a complicated and elaborate dress of some purple stuff. It changed the whole character of her appearance, for it made her into a great lady, I think really the first great lady I had ever seen. The rather bold Indian features seemed softened, and no longer savage, but noble and splendid. She was decidedly not a pretty woman. That was too mild and milksoppy a word. She was decidedly handsome. And she had something which I did not understand then, being a small boy, although I was aware of it. As I grew older I came to know what it was, something which a woman does not acquire. She must be born with it. It has a great deal to do with her figure, and a great deal with her spirit. Here, on this lonely farm against the sky, was a woman who had both distinction and what the French call chic. The dinner was good. There was squash and beans and cabbage and cheese and milk and jam made of wild grapes and honey and homemade bread and butter cold and fresh out of the icy water of the old spring-house. Only one thing puzzled me. There wasn't any meat. And when Zenobia went into the kitchen to bring in the frosted pawpaws she had for a dessert, I said to my father, "'Why isn't there any meat?' He looked at me quickly and said, "'You mustn't speak about that. Zenobia never kills anything.' She came into the room, and that day I heard no more of the story. I did not hear it until long afterward, perhaps because my father thought I was too young. When lunch was over, Zenobia said briskly, "'The boy ought to have his nap, Cousin Tom, and I'd not be surprised if you'd like one, too.' We had eaten a great deal, and my father was sleepy. I said, "'I don't want to take a nap. I want to go out and play.' 
What I really wanted was to re-enter that enchanted world where there were no annoying grown-ups, and all the animals and birds were companions. I had never before been any place like the strange wild thicket of old-fashioned flowers and shrubs. They didn't argue with me. My father said he'd like a nap, and disappeared into the parlor to lie down on the sofa. Zenobia began clearing away the dishes, and I went back to the pond below the spring-house. I began digging in the mud, while the ducks swam in close to watch me, turning their heads on one side in duck fashion to satisfy their curiosity. They chattered a great deal among themselves. The cow came down to the pond to drink. The new calf, teetering on its long legs, moved forward in jerky, sudden movements. I stopped digging to watch, and suddenly the calf became my brother, a small creature for whom I felt a sudden, intense love, quite different from the sort of love I felt for any person, even my own parents or my brothers or sisters. It was as if we were both part of something which other people did not understand, a whole world apart in which there were sounds which no human could understand. I knew suddenly what the ducks were quacking about, and understood the look in the great brown eyes of the Jersey cow. The squirrel came down to the edge of the pond, and did a curious thing. He dipped both his tiny paws into the water, and then put them into his mouth, and cleaned them with his tiny pink tongue. And while I was watching him, I felt that someone or something was watching me. The sensation became so intense that I turned, and so discovered Zenobia standing near the spring-house among the willows in the old-fashioned purple dress. She was smiling at me, and suddenly I had for her the same feeling of fathomless understanding I had experienced for the ducks, the cow, and the squirrels. For a long time we stared at each other, and then she said, "'That one over there, the squirrel.' That's John. He's an impudent bad character, but very comical. Then she softly said, John, John, come here, you rascal. The squirrel sat up, cocked his head, and then came round the end of the pond, passed very close to me, and scampered up the purple dress to Zenobia's shoulder, where he sat up again, chattering, his tail curled up over his back. She looked down at me and said, "'You see what they're like. We can talk to each other.' She turned her head a little way and said, "'How about it, John? Can't we?' The squirrel made a chattering noise, and Zenobia said, "'He's asking who you are and what you're doing here.' Then to the squirrel she said, "'It's all right. He knows what we know. He may forget it some day, but in the end it will come back to him.' He's one of those that is touched like us. The squirrel turned toward me, exactly as if he understood what she was saying. He remained quite still for a time, as if studying me, and then suddenly he began to chatter again, and scampered down the purple dress across the path, and up onto the roof of the old cabin, swearing angrily. Then I saw what had happened. My father had wakened, and was now coming toward us out of the tangle of bushes. Zenobia said softly, "'It's no good now. He's spoiled it.' 
We bade Zenobia goodbye, hitched up the horses, and drove off, leaving her standing at the gate in the purple dress with all the rings on her fingers. We drove up the rise of the bald hill and down the other side through the dark tunnel through the forest out into the world again. On Edbury's place we passed two hunters, their bags heavy with slain rabbits. My father said, "'They won't go up to Zenobia's place.' "'Why?' I asked. He chuckled. "'Because she'd get out her own shotgun and drive them off. They all know about her. Once she did kill a man. They all know about it.' We drove for a time in silence, and then I asked, "'Dad, what does tetched mean?' He looked at me quizzically. "'It usually means somebody's a little crazy. Why did you want to know?' "'Because Cousin Zenobia told the squirrel it was all right, I was tetched like her.' My father chuckled. "'Sometimes I think maybe she's right.' I punched him on the arm, and he added, "'I wouldn't let it worry you. Most people think Zenobia is tetched, but I think she's a mighty smart woman. And then he sighed. Why, I did not know then. I only suspected there was something he envied Zenobia. I don't know when exactly I heard the beginnings of Zenobia's story. Very likely I never heard it all in one piece, but in fragments absorbing it and fitting it together in my own growing mind, as children absorb folk tales and the stories of their countryside. Zenobia was very definitely a part of the county, a part of its life and its history. As I grew older I used to see her sometimes on the streets of the town, for she left the Ferguson place about once a month to make the ten-mile trip as best she could, hitchhiking her way on wagons and in buggies, to buy spices and coffee and things she could not raise with her own hands on that high bald hill. Sometimes she bought a ribbon or two, and when the first five-and-ten-cent store came to town, Zenobia was in heaven. She bought all the cheap jewelry she could afford out of the meager income left from her peach orchard and grapes and apples after the taxes were paid. No one in the town took any special notice of her, but upon strangers the sight of her, wandering along Main Street in her bizarre clothes with a basket filled with spices and trinkets over one arm, was startling. For these monthly trips into town she dressed with the greatest care, and always she wore the same dress and hat and lace mitts. The dress, I think, must have been one she made for her marriage. The material was yellow taffeta, and the design included many ruffles and pleats. It had a train and the faint suggestion of a bustle. On her head she wore a big black picture hat, covered with whatever flowers were in bloom at the moment in the woods and fence rows of her high pastures. When winter came she adorned the hat with heads of wheat and the immortelles which grew in her garden. All these she sewed on fresh each time she made the expedition to town, the effect, you might think, was bizarre and sloppy, but this was not so. If you saw her in the early morning before the flowers had wilted, the effect had the same indefinable chic which touched her whole appearance. Sometimes she used bunches of brilliant blue bachelor's buttons, sometimes two or three large sunflowers, occasionally a cluster or two of scarlet geraniums. 
she would have made a great milliner. I think in New York or Paris she would have made a fortune. On her fingers she wore innumerable cheap rings, and over these she always wore black lace mitts. The yellow taffeta dress had a train which she rarely troubled to pick up, and as the years passed the dust and moisture created a band of brown at the bottom of the slowly decaying material which made up the skirt. You would think that she had a mad appearance, but neither was this true. The upright dignity of her carriage, the strength of the hawk-nosed face, the intelligence of the opaque black eyes gave her both distinction and presence. To the town people who knew her story, there was nothing wild or strange about her, and when strangers who had been startled by her appearance heard her story, she lost her strangeness for them. Zenobia was born in the cottage where I first saw her just after her parents had moved out of the old log house, which later became the barn. When she was four years old her mother died, and from then on she lived with her father in that cottage on the high hill close to the sky, with his wide view of three counties. In those days the farm was even more remote than at the time I first knew it. In winter it became isolated altogether by snow and mud, which made the first crude roads impassable, and so she did not go to school. Her father taught her everything she knew, and that was a great deal, for her father, although an eccentric man, had an education far beyond that of the neighboring farmers, and he passed it on to her, along with all the old books I saw in the cottage. It was a lonely life, and she grew up nearer to the birds and wild things than to the people who lived in the valley below. And then one day, when cholera swept through all the county, her father ate a fresh peach on a visit to the county seat, and returned home, and died before Zenobia had time to go down to the valley for a doctor. She was seventeen when he died, a tall, straight, self-reliant girl with blue-black hair and black eyes. The neighbors helped her bury her father, and then proposed that she come down to the valley and teach school, for she had a better education than any of them. They proposed that she live with them in turn. They were kindly people and would have welcomed her, and all of them, none too well educated, wanted their children to have the benefit of Zenobia's knowledge. But Zenobia would not leave the farm high on the hill against the sky. Perhaps it was the magnificence of the view, or her own nearness to nature and all wild things which held her there. No one ever knew, for she never told them. She only said that she had to look after Pa's farm. No amount of money or entreaty had any effect. "'It's my land now,' she said stubbornly. "'I can't leave it after Pa worked so hard to get it cleared.' It is possible that, even then, there was in her Indian blood and in her upbringing something which made her wild and shy of towns and places where people gathered. But the old men who knew her as a girl, and talked about her, and, as they grew older, told her story over and over again, said there was never anything queer about her as a young girl. She was very handsome, they said, and smart as the crack of a whip. And she could dance wildly and well, for after she fell in love with Aaron, she sometimes came down from the farm to the square dances held in the valley. 
the old men all said that they would have married Zenobia gladly, and that they envied Aaron his luck. A handsomer or a smarter woman there never was in all the county. When her father died, the neighbors volunteered to help her with the farm, working for nothing or for a share of the wheat and corn, because they all felt friendly toward her and had a curious awe for education. That is how Aaron came to meet Zenobia. He was the son of the miller who had the big mill on Honey Creek. The old man who knew him said Aaron was the strongest man in the county. He stood six feet four and was broad and muscular, and when he first went up to the farm on the hill against the sky to help with the harvest, he was a year older than Zenobia. He had blonde hair and blue eyes and a straight nose. The old daguerreotype which they found after Zenobia was dead shows him sitting up very straight with hands on both knees, staring straight into the picture-taking machine. But for all the woodenness of the pose, there is in the faded gold-framed picture a twinkle in the eye and a cockiness in the carriage of the head. It is clear that he must have been, as the old men put it, quite a fellow with the girls. The old man said he liked to joke, and had a laugh you could hear half a mile away. His heartiness, his cockiness, were probably just what a wild, shy girl like Zenobia needed and was looking for. Anyway, they said that she changed mightily after she fell in love with Aaron, and that she came down from the hill to go to dances and parties, and for a year or more was the belle of the county. I don't know how they met, perhaps when he came in to the dinner she had cooked for the harvest hands, or perhaps they met in the old spring house when he came there for a drink of the cold water that poured into the great trough of pink sandstone. Anyway, it happened a very long time ago, well on toward a hundred years. And Zenobia is not really dead yet, or Aaron either, for even today young people born after she was dead have heard their story and know their names. It was one of those passionate love affairs watched by the whole world around them. Never, the old men said, had two young people ever been more in love. They said that Aaron would sometimes sit out a square dance just for the pleasure of watching Zenobia as she danced with a special wild grace that none of the other girls displayed. The Indian in her gave her not only a gypsy look, but a gypsy wildness. And when the dance or sociable was over, Aaron and Zenobia would go back together on horseback up that long tunnel through the woods until they came out on the high bald hill. Sometimes there was glistening snow on the ground, and sometimes the night was soft yet brilliant with stars, and the air scented with the perfume of wild flowers or the musty smell of the wild grapes which hung down over the road. Sometimes, the old man said, it was whispered that Aaron did not return to the valley the same night. But the odd thing was that, in so respectable a world as the valley, the whispers caused so little disapproval and resentment. I think it must have been because even those people understood that there was something special about Zenobia. It was as if she belonged to another world with her strange, wild, lonely life. I do not know, Perhaps no one ever knew whether Zenobia and Aaron were lovers, but it seems unlikely that they were not. He was a handsome, wild young man, and she lived alone without restraint, high on her lonely hill. 
As one of the old men called Mr. Charles said to my father, I hope they were lovers. They should have been. It was wrong and bitter cruel if they were not. They would have married as they planned to, but for the fact that Aaron had a plan. He meant to go out to the West, for he wanted to get ahead in the world, and he wanted to be established before they married. And so one day he left, filled with the idea that he would find a gold mine there, and then come back and marry Zenobia and take her with him back to the West. When he went away, Zenobia returned to her old solitary way of living. She never went down into the valley to the dances and sociables, but remained on the hill girded by forest. You have been listening to the first part of Up Ferguson Way by Lewis Bromfield. I hope you'll join me again next week for the conclusion. In the meantime, best wishes for the memorial holiday. Be well, be happy, stay safe. All the best.